And Lord, I submit myself to your book. I submit myself to your spirit. I submit myself to you, Jesus, as my king. I am your disciple. You are my master. I want to do what you want to do. I want to say what you want to say. I want to be what you want me to be. I want to go where you want me to go. I, Lord, so I just ask that you would come. You're the teacher, capital T, Jesus. Holy Spirit, you're the one that guides us into all truth. You're the one, Lord, that reveals to the lost and reveals to the 50-year seasoned saint the beauty and glory of Jesus. Holy Spirit, you do it. You're the one. And so I ask now that you would superintend every thought, every word, and that you would just drop your heart into every person's heart and mind here today. We love you, Lord. And we're expectant for you to do great and mighty things as a result of meeting with us today. In Jesus' name, and everyone said amen. amen. I believe that we are in the days in, in, in our nation, in America, that what some might call um, dark days or weary days, and although that may be true in some capacity, that the true expression of a people following a king named Jesus, the stage has been set for us to have some of the most powerful days ever in the history of America as the church of Jesus Christ. That as um, Jesus told us the parable um, in Matthew 13, the way life works is that there's always going to be simultaneously wheat that grows up and tares that grow up. T-A-R-E-S, tares, the worthless. Both take nutrients and sunlight and space. And Jesus told us in this parable, don't waste your time going around lopping all the tares around you and claiming your pure, perfect wheat and all this junk. Jesus said, you just focused on being wheat. I'm going to grow you and flourish you, but there will be a day when the tares will be torn down and tossed into the fire. And so in America, in the nations, it gets really depressing if our role as citizens of the kingdom is just predominantly to sit on the seat of judgment and to say, well, that church is not good enough, or this movement, or that church. How many know it does not take grace or the power of Spirit of God to sit in the seat of judgment? In fact, that's part of the number one fruits of the fall is that we can discern from good and evil. It doesn't take a prophet to be able to declare what's wrong. Although sometimes that's a part of the prophetic ministry, to declare what is true. But I want to suggest that Cornerstone Church, Church of Santa Maria, Church of the Central Coast, Church in America, if we will allow the Lord Jesus to prune us in this hour, if we will allow the Lord Jesus to cleanse us from areas of shadows, areas of duplicity, areas where we've said one thing and lived another, if we will allow the Spirit of God, and He will do it in gentleness and kindness, for now. If we will allow him to do that, what will happen is there will be a wheat field for the city, for the nation to feast upon the fruit from our lives as we are rightly aligned with King Jesus. 
Are you tracking with me? The, the great hope is not get your machete and start cutting down the tares. The great hope is to turn it on yourself. Not the machete. I mean, the pruning work of the Holy Spirit, John 15. Say, Lord, I don't know. I know the church and this and that and America, this and that. But, Lord, I want to be a representative of Jesus in my generation for your glory. This is the time, church, in America. This is the time to allow Jesus to do a deep pruning work in us so that we are that city on a hill, that we are that not just pile of worthless salt, but salty salt. Are you tracking with me? I mean, Jesus says, you know, salt that loses its saltiness, it kind of, it doesn't even work on manure. If you read Luke chapter 14, 33, it's there, 32, 33, 34. So none of that was a part of the message. It was an intro. <laughs> it was an intro to say, I want to look the next three weeks. It might be the next eight weeks. I haven't decided. I've got five written ideas in my ongoing dialogue with the Lord as we think about what we're doing and how we're going to communicate. But I want to start a series today called Your Welcome. Not like I cleaned up your backyard or did your lawn that needed to be mowed and then you say thank you and I say you're welcome. But you, apostrophe R-E, welcome. You're welcome. That as we see wheat and tares grow, not only in America, but in the world, the true and the false, one of the most compelling dynamics that I believe has been set for us as the church is this radical summons to be a kind of people filled with compassion and love Dynamics of generosity, dynamics of hospitality, dynamics of unity and diversity. I'm telling you, it is our finest hour to listen again to what the Spirit says about the kind of community the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be. It is a stunning hour. And specifically over these next several weeks, in light of launching journey groups, which, by the way, is the church scattered all across this region. You may not have a steeple over your house or a cross or whatever, but where two or three are, there I am in the midst of them. And it is our vision and dream for journey groups is that every one of those houses or coffee shops or conference rooms becomes a doorway, a highway, a window to the onlooking world. This is what it looks like to belong to the people of God. And you're welcome here. You're welcome. You, apostrophe R, you're welcome here. None of us, by our own merit or track record, deserve to even don the doorway. But Jesus has come 
for both Jew and Gentile, slave and free, smart and educated and uneducated and simple. Jesus has come and he's blasted the doorway open to the very power and presence and love of God. And he's made a space within the relationship of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the nations for you to say, this is my home. For you, for you to say, even though the call of the gospel is to leave home and mother and wife and brothers and sisters, just read Luke 14, Luke 9, we're going to get there over the next several weeks, that even as we say yes to the call to follow, we are not following alone, but what we discover is this new sense of family emerges and it transcends your generation, it transcends your social status, your economic status, it transcends your culture or nationality, but that in Christ, Galatians 3.28, you are all one by way of your baptism. So no matter what's going on out there, or you know, we're supposed to care and be, but listen, we bear witness to a king on a throne currently who cannot be voted out or, or um, thwarted. His purposes cannot be stopped. And you and I, if you're in this room, our first citizenship is to resemble the king on that throne. You may say, well, where are you left or are you right? You're not even asking the right question. The point is, I've been blood-bought. I am crucified with Christ. And the life I live in the body, I don't get to choose the way I live it. I live by faith in the one who welcomed me into relationship apart from my merit or my track record, but out of his sheer mercy and grace. This is the glory of the gospel, by the way. This is just the gospel. We're not going to budge on the gospel, no matter if it costs us our life. If you lose the gospel, you've lost everything. The reality of God in Christ in search of humanity, apart from anything they brought to the table, he brings the table right into the presence of your gunk and your funk. And he says, sit and eat with me. That's what we're going to talk about. Luke chapter 9. The sermon series is called Your Welcome. An argument started among the disciples, if you can throw that scripture up there, as to which of them would be the greatest. I love getting to read scripture from this side of 2,000 years of history because I would never do that. Come on, somebody, elbow your neighbor. Aren't you glad we have the scriptures to learn from all the stupid mistakes of disciples that we still make today? Anyway, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and he had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever, read it with me, welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. I want to read that again because I didn't write it. It's in the scriptures that we cannot change and we do not manipulate for our own purposes. The scriptures are the sword that proceeds from the mouth of God that is sharper, if, uh, Hebrews 4.12, 
to divide our thoughts and our intentions, our bone and our marrow, our soul and our spirit. The word is the plumb line that sets the crooked places straight. Can I get an amen? Let's read it again. Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes who? The one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Now, I want to just leave the scripture up there the whole time until I tell you the next one, please. Jesus does not rebuke the disciples that they want to be great. Someone hear me? Did you know you cannot repent away your desire and my desire to be excellent, to, to be great? How many know that's a pretty normal human experience to want to make a difference in your life? Can you just shake your head at me or say yes or amen? Yeah. You can't repent that thing away. The desire to be great, the desire to make an impact, the desire, if you're in your later years, to leave a legacy for your kids and grandkids, aren't you glad you can't repent that away? You want to be great. You want to leave an imprint, an impact. Every human does. So Jesus doesn't rebuke his boys, the disciples, who, by the way, 23 verses earlier, he said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, which is the context of this passage, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me daily. So that's the context. So this is not just the average, I'm in it for what Jesus can do for me. Come on, somebody. I just want to get my sins a little bit marked, and I'm, I'll give a little bit of money once a month or something. The context of this whole book is that it's for everybody, but the invitation is to be a kind of peculiar people. Are you tracking with me? So the book and the person of Jesus, I've made a way for everyone, but the invitation is very specific, and the kind of people we're to become is very, God actually has an agenda and opinion. So Jesus doesn't rebuke them because they want to be great or that they want to be great. He rebukes them for how they want to get there. Someone say how. how. He rebukes them not that they want to be great, but the how they want to get great and the who who will be pummeled on their way to their perceived hill or mountain of greatness. So it's the how that he rebukes. And in light of the who, who are going to be collateral damage on their way to the greatness that is burning on their hearts. You tracking with me? So it's the how and the who. It's not the that, because everyone wants to be great. But in the kingdom, there's a specific way to get there, to greatness. Who wants to be great? Everyone. Not the how. I mean, the how. And Jesus is saying, your how is jacked up. You don't realize who is going to get wrecked on your way towards greatness. And he's saying, but there is a way, say way, way, toward greatness. I love the way. Here's why I love the word way. Did you know that in the book of Acts, you know, this early document of the explosive nature of the early church, they were called followers of the way on numerous occasions. There was, I wish, I, I sort of want that word to come back. So it's not just, I'm a Christian man or a I'm a follower of a way of life. 
How many know that right there at the beginning of the journey is usually where the, the ship gets turned sideways or it stays path, straight? It's not just a mental ascent to believing orthodox Christian truths. It's about allowing the truth to set us free and to shape our lives in a certain way. That's why I like followers of the way. So Jesus is saying, I'm not mad at you, disciples. That you want to be great. Everyone does. Praise God. I'm not mad at you, but I'm telling you how you think you're going to get there. You don't realize who's going to get in the way, and you're going to hurt. So let me show you the way to greatness. All right. So there's some powerful lessons I want us to just look at from this passage. I want us to chew on. Um, I made a note earlier this week. I'm not checking the score because it's not on until 3. <laughs> Which I am going to miss the game so you can feel sorry for me because I have to take a train to San Diego because I've got so much homework to catch up on. From 2 to 10 o'clock, I will be doing homework on a train headed to San Diego. Boo-hoo. So y'all can root for the Falcons for me. Or whoever. I'm not trying to be offensive. It's not in the scriptures, man. So we're going to move on. And I wrote this, I wrote this, um, this original thought a few days ago. The, the, the Lord just put it on my heart. I love when he gives you little one-liners because you can hang on them. Don't dissect the book. Digest the book. We are the ones under its scrutiny, not the other way around. In other words, the Bible is not a mathematical or scientific equation to prove its validity. But like Jesus, our posture is to be under the book, the scriptures. I just wanted to find that quote. I just thought about it earlier this week. So there you go, extra credit. It'll be on the test someday. And you know what I mean by dissected. I'm not saying don't study. I study a mile deep sometimes, but dissecting it as if you were over it instead of being under it. You understand, praise the Lord. So there's, a, there's 18 lessons I want us to look at from this story. That was supposed to be a joke. No one laughed. Um, number one, this is just in no particular order. These are just reflections. Frankly, the Lord gave me this morning. So there you go. So I'm reflecting with you. Number one, arguing about greatness seldom produces greatness. Oh, that was deep. Come on, somebody. <laughs> Anytime we're trying to more, spend more time talking about something we want to possess, we're probably not very far down the path towards possessing it. That wasn't in the notes. That was a good one. The P.S., if you're wondering if this is politically charged, it has absolutely, I read the scripture this morning in my devotions and I'm preaching out of it. So I'm not grumpy, I'm not mad. I'm actually really, really pumped right now in the Lord. Arguing about greatness is seldom fruitful. The very fact that we are the ones trying to define and describe what greatness actually is might be an indicator that we're off on our description. How many know there is only one who gets to define things, and his name is Jesus? That the plumb line, the literal split point of all of history, is the person and work and reality of King Jesus. What's, 
I want to be great. The problem with having arguments about greatness, if it's not submitted to and in the reality of Jesus, is that our version is going to be whack. All mingled and jankily and ugh. That's a word. Look it up. Which leads me into point number two. To define greatness in light of ourselves is a very dangerous game. We are not to be definers of it. That even as the rich ruler in Mark chapter 10 came to Jesus and said, Good teacher, and Jesus' rebuke to him is, Who are you calling good, Jack? There's no one good but God alone. In the same sense, we have to take our cues from any character um, dynamic that is fruitful in life-giving. It comes and is defined and flows from God himself. I'm the greatest. Look, can you imagine them? Bless their hearts. They are in the Bible. It's not fair to them. Because what if a book was written about us and how many times we blew it? <laughs> Moving on, because that would be a bummer. Number three, we see from this passage, these are, just, I, these are just thoughts I have, and you can chew on them or spit them out, whatever. Is, um, by the way, number three, this little old thing called Jesus Knows Our Thoughts. Yikes. Does that scare anyone else? Let me say, does that make anyone else happy that even when I don't know what in the world I'm thinking, someone can discern through the cloudy mess and he understands? <laughs> I should have put it that way first. Anyone ever struggle with cloudy brain? <laughs> I want you to know that there is one who transcends your thoughts. There is one, Psalm 139, Matthew 10, Matthew 5 who knows the very hairs on your head. And that, for some of you, it's not very many, so it's not hard for them. <laughs> but for some of us, that's a pretty incredible feat. Yeah. I want you to know that Jesus knows your thoughts. And even though that might cause you to go, oh boy, I want you to know that is the most liberating truth to hit your heart, that there is one who can break through every one of our false ideas about what it means to be a Christ follower. He can break through all of our games we play to jockey for position at the table to try to be great in the arm of flesh. There is one whose thoughts about us are 100% accurate 100% of the time. In other words, even if our definitions about greatness were right, there is still one who knows us better than ourselves. And he is the one, by the way, who weighs, Isaiah 40, the nations on his heavenly scales. How much more so, Isaiah 40, I didn't say it, us little grasshoppers is what scripture calls us. Is read Isaiah 40, the little grasshoppers. So Jesus knows the thoughts. Uh, Psalm 33, of every human heart, he knows every thought. Every agenda, motive. And so instead of that being a woe is me, which is part of the phase of faith, woe is me, it's woe. Thank God someone can make a mess out of this. This other passage I want us to just look at, this is why the Apostle Paul says this, um, the, the next uh, passage, I carry very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It is, say it with me, the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will, uh-oh, 
bring to light what is hidden in the darkness. He will expose the motives of the heart. And at that time, each will receive their praise from God. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So the point number three of our talk about this idea of greatness and what does it mean to be the people of God is that there's one whose judgment and assessment is 100% right 100% of the time. And he knew the thoughts of his disciples back to the other passage about greatness and they're jockeying for position. He's like, guys, did you miss the part about I'm the Messiah that's not going to come and blow to smithereens that I'm going to the cross? You missed that part. And how many know many of us still miss that part? We serve a crucified Lord. No, he's not dead anymore. He's alive. But we can't lose sight of the path of Jesus was glory in heaven for all eternity. He becomes human, the conception of the Holy Spirit in a virgin's womb. He is forced to leave his home and to flee to Egypt as a, merc- as, an, as a refugee. You tracking with me? This is Jesus' path. He's from Nazareth, which is a town that it's not you go around boasting I'm from Nazareth. Let's just put it that way. Everywhere he goes, they try to kill him. His entire ministry is directed towards those who are considered outsiders, on the fringes, losers, lowlifes, sinners, prostitutes. He's confused to be one of them. Read Matthew 11 when he's confused with being a drunkard or attacked just because he was hanging with. My kingdom is over this world. I would, my followers would fight, but I'm here to testify to the truth. And he empties not only from his posture and position of privilege, his whole life is one of, word of downward mobility. You tracking with me? And I might suggest that if we're trying to arrive at some definition of great greatness, it might just look like the path of Jesus. That's premature. Number four, back to this passage. A lesson, just an observation, is we cannot judge people's worth just from their outward or culturally defined box. Jesus, let me, let me explain. Go back to the other passage, please. We'll just leave it the other one the whole time now. In Jesus' day, children, sort of not like our day, where children sort of rule the roost. Come on, somebody. It's crazy. The cult, we're going to do some cultural work here. But in the first century, children were out of sight, out of mind. You don't you not even count as a, whole, a full human. That was Jesus' culture. So the fact that Jesus takes a child who is totally to be on the outside, they have no way deserve to be on the inside or any sort of important discussion. You are outsiders, child. Listen, lesson number four is if Jesus takes this child and he becomes not the one to be pushed at a distance, but the one to become like, how many know our ideas about who's in and who's out are a little bit different than Jesus' idea? Jesus redefines the nature of what it means to be a part of his family, and everyone should say amen because of that. Because before Christ, you and I probably wouldn't be sitting here. We don't belong. We're from the wrong side of the tracks. The ones that Jesus esteems and, and spends his whole life, and you can just read especially Luke's gospel, which we're going to read the next several weeks, 
The ones that are considered throwaways, worthless, despised, and unimportant are the ones Jesus brings into the center. And everyone said amen, because that's us, you guys. No matter what you think you are or I think I am, I do not deserve to be where I'm at. It's an act of God's sheer mercy. Number five, if this passage teaches us anything about what does it mean to be a part of the family, disciples, is that we cannot identify with Jesus and not, not identify with those he identifies with. I can't say Jesus is my homeboy. Wear a t-shirt. Get the tattoo. If I don't identify with those that Jesus himself identifies with. Let me help you, because you all are still staring at me. I think this is easy. Those that Jesus identifies with come with him. Whoever welcomes this little child in my name, which by the way, that phrase, I studied it today, this morning, early. It's in his name we cast out demons. It's in his name we push back the darkness. It's in his name that we're forgiven and free. It's in his name that we're set free. And isn't it interesting, the same phrase is used, in his name, a new kind of family is possible. That's how revolutionary it is. You and I, we won't just get together and get together and be happy. It is a work of God to radically orient our hearts and lives that all of us would be humbled before the Lord and we would make a space for people to find Jesus together. We need his name to help us with that. You and I can't do it. Our ideas of greatness and if we're the ones who have the clipboard and here's what you got to do to get in the family and be, how many know we wouldn't even make the criteria of our own list? There is a list that triumphs over that list, and it's called mercy. It's called the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel 101. Come on, Samuel. You cannot identify with Jesus and then not not identify with those he identifies with. It doesn't work that way. I want Jesus, and can you just see it? You peel his arm off those he spends his whole life to be with. I just want Jesus alone. I want you to know you don't get Jesus alone. You don't get to make that choice if you're a disciple. Whoa. That's not mean. That's good news. Because how many want to see breakthrough in their life more? And I would contend that going toward this path of identifying with those who he identifies with might just reveal more of his glory and beauty than we ever imagined. Lord, show me who you are. And he's saying to me, he's saying to us, then go get with those who I'm with. You'll discover who I am. So point number six, there's only two more, three more. Jesus identified, this is what's so stunning. This is, this is the king. The king identifies with the unimportant you, you guys can't even, I can't even get that into my brain. I'm too slow. The king of the universe, the creator, the word that spoke a word, and we see everything in the world with its vibrancy and color, he identifies with unimportant, unimpressive people. Maybe you're more impressive and that's not cool to you. That's stunning to me. That wrecks my heart. The king 
doesn't identify with people in palaces or pomp and prominence. He is in the gutter with people who could never afford to get there. He just, that's just where, you just, I mean, I'm not even saying that deep reading, a, a perusal, a, you will see that to be true. Grace always flows downward. It doesn't flow up. It flows down. The mercy of God. It flows down. It flows down. It flows down. Jesus identifies with the unimportant, out of sight, out of mind, pushed to the fringes children. The disciples think they're hanging around with the soon-to-be coronated king of Israel, jockeying for position, debating what, which rank or file they will be in in the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, or Jesus is playing Simon Says with the child. Or I mean Jesus Says with the child. That was funnier in the secret place when I wrote the joke. <laughs> this is a really good sermon. It's just the word. But Lord Jesus, we just wrote it together this morning. I'm boasting in the Lord. He's speaking. His word is alive and active, church. I set my alarm, and I accidentally fell back asleep, and I got up at 5.20, and my coffee was burnt because I pre-set it for 4.34, and I drank cruddy coffee, and the light, I don't even care because I opened his word, and his word opened me. And it changed my life. Jesus identifies with the unimportant. And while they're debating, I wonder if I'll be a colonel, or I wonder if I'll be a magistrate, or whatever other political, I don't even know, language. Jesus is over there playing, Jesus says, with the child. And they're missing an entire picture of what Jesus is even all about. And I want to say to us in our arguing for position and prominence, I'm saying we're missing out on a large part of the person and nature and character of Jesus. He's down there playing with children. Yeah. Number seven, we're almost there. If Jesus hangs out with the unimportant, the outside fringe child, and child, we're going to see over the next several weeks, can be synonymous with drunkard. I mean, there's people that we would not want to associate with. Number seven, if that's true, then that means part of what it means to follow Jesus is that we will do also seemingly unimportant things in the eyes of those around us, but it's part of following Jesus. That you and I, if we're going to identify with Jesus, which is to say we can't just identify with Jesus and then pry out the arm and if his whole ministry, it means he comes with those he identifies with. That means if we give our lives to true greatness as disciples who are in the classroom under King Jesus as our teacher, that means you and I will spend a vast majority of our time constantly having to encourage each other. What you're doing is not just stupid little insignificant activity. Jesus identifies with the child, and if we do it to the child, we do it to Jesus, and if we do it to Jesus, we do it to the Father. Whoa, listen, we're so obsessed because of Hollywood movies and everything. We love the hero who saves the ship and who catches the plane, but in the kingdom, a lifestyle of doing unimportant things as unto Jesus is true greatness. It is true greatness. 
Whoa! Jesus not only redefines the essence of greatness, he redefines the essence of doing great things. Come on. He doesn't just redefine, this is what greatness is. He says, no, 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 doing great things is different than what you thought. It's getting in the dirt and playing with kids. You know why I'm so stunningly grateful that he reorients and redefines the whole thing of greatness and what it means to be his people is that everyone can do it. If it was just doing the big and the flashy where it was dependent upon your pay grade, your talent, or ability, only a few could do it. The gifted ones. But if this passage is true, I don't know the other alternative. You can say it's not true. It's true for me. And Jesus doesn't just redefine the essence of greatness. He redefines what it looks like to do great things. You may be thinking it's just the big, flashy, huge, sacrificial things that put me on the path of greatness, but I would argue humbly it's a path of small as unto the Lord Jesus himself, seemingly unimportant, mundane, everyday things with the heart of a servant that over a lifestyle, a life long, you will arrive and the Lord will say, And then lastly, Jesus totally identifies with the child. I am that child, says Jesus. I don't just minister to the child. I completely identify with the child. And guess what? So does my father. More is at stake here, beloved, than just doing a few nice things for unfortunate, forgotten, outsider people. We are talking about nothing less than receiving God himself. Read the text, man. I'm not making it up. If you welcome this little child, you follow that string and strand of a call of a disciple. At the end of that string is God himself. You receive me. That's cool. Who wants to be great? Everyone. It's a fact. Human. Every human wants to. Everyone wants to make an impact. And I would say, you are welcome. Sermon part one. What will set this church ablaze and apart from any other organization in this city or region is that our invitation to the world is... Come as you are and find your place at the feast of the kingdom of God right next to Jesus. Right here. Find your place at the feast. How many know that none of us deserve to be at the table? So that's a silly argument. It's not about ever earning it or deserving it, but that you've been called to the table. You! Me. But you don't know what I've done. Oh, I do. Because I've done. Jesus took it all. Jesus paid it all. He drained all that was against us by drinking it himself. So he could extend invitations to us little children 
out making a mess of things far too often. And he's saying, I, I don't just tolerate you. I actually identify with you. I want you in my family. Now, if the key to all of this is that it's in and through Jesus. You're welcome here. You, everyone in this room. It doesn't matter what you brought in. It doesn't matter what you've done. That in Christ, you're welcome here. In the family of God. But to belong to the family means we become a kind of people together. There is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. But Jesus is the way, the truth, to the life that every human wants to experience. And my challenge for us what would it look like for us to begin to welcome this, our colleague, our neighbor, our friend, the person from the other side of the tracks into our lives? We might just experience something new about Jesus himself. Yes. 